Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special mom in your life. And what better way than with the Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets that are perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their advanced eye care duo brightens, awakens, and firms the skin around your eyes, while the golden glow body trio nourishes and smooths the skin all over. Both sets are packaged in giftable boxes. They're so beautiful you can skip the wrapping. And the best part? For a limited time, you can save up to $46 on Osea's sets. Plus, get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. This Mother's Day, get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. Go to OseaMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off site-wide. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. We have a fun episode for you today with Ethan Nicole, the creative director at the Babylon Bee. Ethan, I'm so glad that you've joined us today. We're going to talk about G.K. Chesterton. We're going to try to get some inside scoop on the Babylon Bee, but we're really glad you're here. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. You know, we had you on, and so now I get to be on, you know, on the other, on here. Yeah. Yes. Got to have you here. So, you know... Babylon Bee, I've told my husband, is one of the platforms on social media that keeps me sane. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm constantly—and here's the thing. I'm constantly seeing these posts come down my Instagram, and every time I'm like, how? How did they come up with this stuff? So how do you come up with this stuff? Are you all sitting in a room, and you just yeah. see something that happened in the news, and you're like, that's going to be a great Babylon Bee piece? Most of our writers are— uh doing normal life so they're working their jobs their normal jobs we only have uh i think we have two dedicated writers maybe that uh on on articles we have kyle the editor-in-chief that's his only job is making you know it's really i mean he has more than that but his main job is putting out articles and then gathering what the other writers come up with and so we get a bunch of guys who just you know they get paid a bit to throw ideas at us and uh they're guys that you know have those funny thoughts and i think that's one reason the babylon b rings true with a lot of it feels a lot of the jokes feel like that the joke you make while you're at work after you hear the news or whatever and it's just kind of um, I think because that's what it is it's guys we're all texting to each other and they're all over the U.S. so all spread out yeah well awesome well tell us a bit about yourself you have kind of an interesting background that that you some things you were doing before you got to the Babylon Bee that other people may know you from so tell us a little bit about that so, um, I mean, I go back into comics is the main place I got going. Uh, uh, my first real success in comics came when I created a webcomic called Axe Cop with my five-year-old brother. And uh, it went viral. 
and it ended up becoming a six-volume Dark Horse comic series and a TV show on Late Night Fox. Uh, Nick Offerman from Parks and Rec did the voice. Um, just a wild, this is a wild, wild time. Suddenly all these, you know, it was like I was on Twitter and suddenly everybody noticed me. Uh, yeah. I was a real person. Like they started, started talking to me, people I was a fan of, you know. Um, like, you know, Patton Oswalt did a voice. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, I ended up writing on Veggie Tales, the new one that everybody hated on uh, Netflix. I was on the. Uh, was <laughs> no, like that's a, a way. That's a good way to promote yourself. I wrote on the Veggie yeah, Tales that everyone audience. hated. You know, I wrote the bastard Veggie Tales that everybody hates and uh, wants something <laughs> to do with, and yeah. uh, the remake. And uh, yeah, if you watch that show, there's a very huge amount of episodes you'll see Ethan Nicole pop up as written by. Um, so yeah, so you're welcome. And uh, yeah, three years of just thinking about how can I get Larry the Cucumber to believe in Jesus today <laughs> you know, know and there's it, all kinds of actual torture ways. yeah right is it? <laughs> but three years of thinking that thought no matter how much you love the show you shouldn't yeah. put anybody through that that's yeah um sure. so I went through that um and then I uh, ended up the Babylon. I've written for some other animation um and then I ended up with the Babylon B I just so happened I lived five miles away from Kyle Mann who's uh, became the editor-in-chief I was the second employee they ever hired I became the creative director um, I, I started off just doing kind of more, uh, the, all the crazier photoshops you see on the Babylon Bee. And, uh, I was like, we got to do a podcast. We got to make a giant book. Uh, we got to do cartoons. We got to do videos. So that's kind of been my thing. Like I've just been trying to break the Babylon Bee into all these other things. Cause to me, I always, from the moment that I saw the Babylon Bee, I said, this is serving the audience that I've always wanted to serve. Mm. Uh, and I love the articles that we can do so much more than this because it's a hungry audience that everybody ignores. That's so true. So describe, what, how would you describe the audience for the Babylon Bee? What's your target audience there? I think it's people, I mean, you know, uh, anybody that watches the news and goes, huh, you know, it's just like, <laughs> what? I, mean, I think yeah. for the, it has become that. I mean, the Babylon Bee did start out and in, in our, you know, I think our main audience was uh, evangelicals who, uh, who, who, who went, huh, about church culture, you know, mm -hmm. like stuff like some of the funny things of the past, the way that worship leaders act or some of the funny, uh, prayer circle stuff and like, and things like that. Now the Babylon Bee always made political humor at the same time. We always made jokes about what's in the news as far as like pro-life stuff or crazy things Obama said. Um, but the audience really did take a shift. I think partially as the Christian culture jokes ran out, there's this big backlog Mm. Joke be made from decades past that we just kind of got caught up on, I think. And you can only make so many skinny jeans jokes uh, right. about you know worship leaders. But uh, we there there was this big shift where we were discovered or found by you know our audience has burst out into this. It's really there's a lot of not just libertarians. I know we got some atheist fans. We got people all over the board. It's people that just feel like uh, comedy should be free. Mm -hmm. um, should be allowed to make these jokes. Um, we should be able to, you know, there's this whole punching down versus punching up thing now, which is a very bizarre concept in humor where it really kind of implies that if you can punch down, then there's people that are below you, which is a weird way to look at the world, if not mm -hmm. kind of really hierarchical in a really bad way. Yeah. <laughs> We're constantly told that. And then you have to think about it, if God or Jesus ever made jokes that can only punch down, right? So. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's true. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So what, what's your favorite? What's your favorite Babylon Bee article yeah. of all time, 
or podcast. Or- I mean, okay, so it's a very meta one, and a lot of us will answer this, and a lot of people hate this one. Because for one thing, a lot of people don't get it when they first see it, and then also, it, so the, we we see humor in everywhere, and we see humor on our own side at the Babylon Bee. And so there's one thing: is we get pitched constantly the worst AOC headlines. Oh yeah, because there is the truth. The AOC says dumb things all the time, and so it's only right to make jokes about that now and then. And like, you know, it's cause it's funny, but then there's also jokes where you're making the joke that AOC is stupid. And you're also reeling that you're not that smart in the process. And so we did a, uh, basically a headline mocking AOC, the, the bad AOC headlines that we get. So we we're basically making fun of our own side. So we did this really stupid one where, uh, stupid AOC strangles herself trying to tie her own shoes by getting strangled on her, or tied up in her own shoelaces. Uh, because she's so stupid. <laughs> it's just a really long run on sentence. And then the whole article is like, she ran into a tree and the cop was like, because she's a dumb socialist, she ran into a tree. And it's just this, the dumbest, worst written article we've ever done. And the funnest part of it is you read the comments. And everybody who has the uh, preconceived idea that either it reveals like three types. There's either people that already think AOC is dumb and anything that says she's dumb is hilarious. So they're uh, applauding it as great comedy. Yeah, uh, And then there's the people that are just like confused. And then there's the people <laughs> that are on the left that just immediately think any joke we make is sincere and we are uh, right-wing garbage. And so therefore, right. this is just a great example of how the Babylon Bee is terrible at humor. Yes. So the joke's kind of on them. But you are making fun of yourself. We're making fun of ourselves. Yeah. And uh, and you'll see some people in the comments start to c- catch on to that. And they're like, I th- if they're making fun of themselves, this might actually be really funny. And then they're like... It's yeah. like they're getting nervous. <laughs> yeah. So theologically, how do you work that out? Because I know with with what I do, you know, I spend a lot of my energy online and, of course, my whole book critiquing progressive Christianity. And, in you know, I don't do satire, sarcasm, and all that. So, when you know, when I see these Babylon Bee articles come down, they make me giggle. And But then I'm always conflicted personally about doing stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's so like, how do you guys work that out theologically? Oh, I mean, Kyle's way better at answering these questions than I am. He went to like Bible school, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I saw think... in your in your uh, book uh, intro that you didn't that you just went to community college or or something. Right, I yeah, went me to like too. a High little five. bit of community college. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And it was on for art at a really small town community college. Yeah, I did three good. semesters, I think, of music major. Pointless, okay. like yeah, yeah. So, yep, that's me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, that for, well, for one thing, just the idea of like the the super nice guy Christian is not really in the Bible. That's not, that, that's not the, you know, so I mean, we have to kind of throw that out, like kindness and also um, seeing your neighbor as equal to you and loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's one thing that's weird, right? Like we can't joke with each other. Uh, like I want to be joked with and I like joking with my closest friends. Yeah. So I think that we should be able to joke with I think that's one thing that the other side doesn't really get. Mm. Is that when we when we make jokes at the left, we are doing kind of an elbow nudge, like, eh, it's, we're just joking with you. <laughs> yeah. They don't joke like that, so they can't see that. Uh, so I think that's one thing that makes it tough. But I, I, I love, we're going to be talking about Chester, and he actually talks about in an essay that I cannot recall very well, it's not in my book, uh, where he talks about the four kinds of satire. And he does talk about how there's one where you really do, you create, you... Uh, 
you satirize, you, you tell the truth about the person and you satirize them. And he said, there is a form of that that is a form of loving your neighbor. And I wish mm. I could eloquently put it the way that Chesterton did, but I think that there is a, um, well, I mean, jokes do bring us together and they make us like, there is mean spirited jokes where you're trying to bring a yeah. person down. And I do think that that's, and I do think some of our headlines, I don't stand by every single headline we do. There's some that those guys liked it. I wasn't crazy about it. Or I had one that they were like, no, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, so that's obviously a fine line. We always have to be dancing. Um, but I think that the main thing is that when the headline is to take down the idea, not the person. Yeah. Um, or we're taking down the caricature of the person. So like, obviously we don't think that Joe Biden is a guy that just is, uh, you know, literally hides in bushes and jumps out and snips <laughs> people's hair. But it's fun to joke about him being that because that's just a funny caricature. <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, I mean, if I was Joe Biden, it I I might find that funny just because of, <laughs> I would hope that I would, you know? Yeah. Um, sometimes when, you know, progressives leave comments and they're like a jab, but they're funny, like I laugh at those too. If they, even if, you know, I'm the object of the right. jab. Oh, no, I be, love when a good, yeah. We, yeah. we read hate mail all the time on our show and we applaud it when it's really well done. Like we have yeah. a guy who tells, <laughs> We had a guy who had written us multiple emails. We recently put this on our YouTube channel. And over months and months, we we hadn't been checking our Instagram instant messages. And so we went and checked them and found this guy had written many hate mails for months. And they got better as they went on, like he was practicing. And one of them said, go eat a sack of bees, which was, we love that. It's such a great line. Yes, go eat a sack of bees. <laughs> and he do some that sounded Shakespearean, you know, he went into different yeah. styles and I don't yeah. know how you get all gonna... the bees in the sack, but that might right. be problematic. Yeah. Hopefully but... you can buy them at a bee store where they're already bagged up. Yes, bee, the bee sack store. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> well, good. So you mentioned Chesterton. That's kind of the main mm-hmm. topic that we wanted to talk about today. You're, you've just released a book that's really a compilation of 14 essays of Chesterton, and it's called Chesterton's Gateway, 14 Essays to Get You Hooked on Chesterton. And I was so excited to talk to you about Chesterton because Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. Way back when uh, my faith was reconstructing and I was just—this whole wide world of Christian writers that I'd never been exposed to before was opened up to me. I read Orthodoxy, uh, and to this day, it's just one of my— favorite books. Um, but you've just released a collection of Chesterton uh, essays in book form. So first of all, why did you decide to write this? And why do you think people need to get hooked on Chesterton? Well, ever since I started the Babylon Bee podcast, um, I bring Chesterton up all the time. And uh, I became a huge Chesterton fan. My Chesterton uh, addiction, which is really what my book is, you know, that's that's the whole joke. Drug addiction. Chesterton's yes. Gay get you hooked. Yes. Uh, you guys didn't pick that up. Subtle. Uh, <laughs> when I was living in Oregon, I, uh, I had moved to Portland. I had been in a rock band. So we had, we're, we're musicians here. And, uh, you know, living that life where like just enough success to not really be successful, but like we had like, we were making money and like playing a lot. And then just put, we just put out like our first full length album. We'd done two EPs, just living it, but then like also becoming exhausted by it. And then finally the band ended. And I found out through that that I was uh, I was actually an introvert. I always thought I was an extrovert, but yeah. I found out my, my whole fake social life was based on being a musician. I only knew how to pe- talk to people that had seen me on stage. I didn't know how to talk to people on the same level as me. So I went through this whole weird depression and thing, and then I was in Portland, had moved there from a small town, and life started to feel really meaningless. I started losing my faith. Um, 
I don't even remember what sparked me to read Chesterton. I think I just, I had read enough Lewis that I was like, mm. uh, I don't know, I need something else. I guess, you know, at the time, first time you hear Chesterton, you think, oh, yeah, they hung out all the time or whatever. They didn't. Uh, Chesterton was the guy that Lewis, you know, studied and copied a lot. Mm. So, uh, so I started reading Chesterton, and one of the first ideas that really struck me, he talks in um, one of his essays about the family, uh, about how the small community uh, is is really the more expansive place, the place where if you really want to experience humanity uh, and the variety of humanity, you live in a small community, uh, mm. and even more so when you live in the family, um, when you get to know your neighbor. Because he's, he's criticizing, I believe, Rudyard Kipling, who says you travel the world and you uh, experience all these cultures, but you get to experience those cultures from this distance. You're observing them like a scientist. You're almost, you know, you could switch them out with penguins or whatever if you're in Bijak Cousteau, but they're just people uh, that you, they, they have no effect on you because they're just a thing to be observed. When there's somebody in your life, you uh, you have to actually experience them and they, they can criticize you and uh, have an effect on you. And so when I moved to Portland, you know, he said that the city is a place built for narrowness. And I had the same idea when I went into Portland. I'm like, I'm going to meet all these people in comics and have all these friends because I'm from this tiny town where everybody just kind of laughs at the whole idea that I'd ever make a living with this stuff. And, uh, and I found a ton of comic artists who, if I had been honest about my beliefs, like the slightest would have just kicked me out because they were completely narrow and on a whole different worldview. So I started to realize this narrowness of the city. So that was one of the first big ideas. And then he started talking about wonder uh, and, and about how wondrous the world is is not how wondrous we're going to make it or by believing in ourselves or the, your imagination is like this actual world right now he's like just think of a leaf think about all the intricacies and the beautiful designs just in the little vein patterns like he just i started looking around me at the beauty around me that's a big chesterton idea mm. so we need to shrink ourselves back down see the world as large uh, because we we've grown out of proportion to it and uh and that humi- i never looked at humility you look at humility as being this like kind of groveling, like I'm sorry that I suck kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, the, but the idea of humility as becoming, you know, a kid in a tiny cheap garden in an apartment complex, shrinking down to a pygmy and suddenly realizing he's in this massive wonderland and seeing mm-hmm. the world or the creation that it originally was seeing, uh, that, you know, the rivers running with water, you know, in the fairy tales, they run with wine only to remind us how amazing it is that rivers run with water or that apples are gold in fairy tales. They remind us that apple, how wondrous it was the moment we found out they were red. Just the idea that he talks about, again, another thing he talks about is Elfland. The idea that there's so many things in this world that we take for granted. Uh, and we assume they just like that because they were supposed to be. Uh, evolution says every single thing that is just had to be that way. It's just That's just how fate decided it should be and uh, it's it robs us of that kind of the wonder of how amazing it is that the sun is in the sky every day and uh, the, the variety of, of creatures that are around us and all the beautiful colors and so oh. he's very good at getting into that stuff and writing about it beautifully and also really hilariously yes he is very funny a lot of people may yeah. not realize that if they don't read him a lot but you you mentioned that you were in Oregon and the depression hit, you started losing your faith. What was it, do you think, that started causing your faith to unravel? And what did Chesterton uh, specifically, mm. <clears throat> I know you, you've touched on humility and wonder, but was there like an aha moment when you're reading Chesterton that that maybe helped give your faith some more stability or help build it back? 
I think the wonder and uh, the wonder stuff, like you know, just just looking at life as it is, um, and also because Chesterton has a big way of a lot of apologetics give you arguments for out of logic and reason of why uh, it could be true there's a god or whatever. Like they're usually not the arguments that you go through to get to your belief. A lot of times they're ones you can add to it to strengthen it. Um, and Chesterton does a lot of breaking down of our already held beliefs. Like he really questions reason and logic. Like he really pokes yeah, he a lot of holes in it. And I had been down this road where I had really gotten into apologetics. And uh, in, in order to practice, uh, I'd, I'd read a whole bunch of apologetics, then I'd go on an atheist forum and very politely, but like I would try to address their answer, address even the meanest ones just for my own practice. I'd write like essays worth of like, you know, comebacks and um, try to be funny and, and have fun with them. Yeah. And it was really a learning experience, but I also really did realize that like a person who's really good with words can argue for anything. And I started getting really disillusioned with using reason and logic and argument. And uh, I, was, I was on this high and I came down from it. <laughs> and so yeah. that was part of where I had come from. Um, I was also in that, once again, I was in that weird depression where just my sense of myself, suddenly realizing I was an introvert. I didn't, I just lived alone for a long time. So I was in a weird depression there too. And I think I had, I think a lot of the good things that come to us in life, we, we tend to let that become what we think of our relationship. I, like, I look back over life and how often was my relationship got a, a girl I had a crush on, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think I was going through something similar to that where the thing I was considering my relationship with God was really a high I was getting from being in a band that was doing pretty good and uh, weird stuff like that. So I it, I was being brought back down to earth and Chesterton was the guy walking me around earth wow. as it has it always been and saying, look at what has been here since all of eternity and you've been looking past it at a rock band. You know? Yeah. Well, that's fascinating that you brought up how he would critique reason and logic because when I discovered him, I had come out of a lifetime of being an artist, a creative, flaky artist, um, led by experience and emotions and I discovered the intellectual side of my faith as an adult, and mm -hmm. Chesterton really bridged that for me. So like this, this quote from Orthodoxy, he says, imagination does not breed insanity. Exactly what does breed insanity is reason. Poets do mm -hmm. not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. I am not, as will be seen, in any sense attacking logic. I only say that this danger does not lie in logic, but in uh, imagination. And for me, I, I had my faith had been under fire intellectually. And so mm -hmm. I was looking for some help, right? I was looking for some help. Like, am I just, have I been crazy my whole life that I've just had this beautiful relationship with the Lord and now the, the intellectual arguments are being stated to me that that's all ridiculous and that nothing's as I thought it was and the Bible can't be trusted and all of this stuff. And it was like Chesterton gave me permission to, to be an artist and not feel stupid for being an artist, you know? And so right. for me, that was like a lifeline, that that quote. And um, and it's interesting that he sort of bridged that. And he is so logical, though, too, at the same time, mm -hmm. which is so interesting because he's kind of critiquing. And I think what he's critiquing is just that, um, you know, plugging everything into a computer and get a, get a formula out of it. And that's just not the way life works. It's not the way God works. And um, yeah, so, so 
it's interesting that in both of our journeys, sort of he he bridged something for us. He kind of walked with us through that. And um, that's part of the reason I love him. And I just, you know, I, I picked up orthodoxy because I started to see these quotes from Chesterton all over the place as I uh, learned apologetics and apologists would always be quoting him. And, uh, and so I want to get into these 14 essays that you've compiled for people, because I think that you know, if if in, if people watching or listening or anything like me, you can go on Kindle and there's the complete works yeah. of G.K. Chesterton, and it's like a million things. It's, yeah, where, you can where do you even start? There's fiction, exactly. there's essays, there's books, there's all kinds of stuff. And then you know, some people are like, well, he was Catholic, and he you know he did become Catholic later in his life, and, and there's all kinds of like roadblocks for people where they're just like, I mm. don't know where to start or what the value is in this. So I love that you're like, hey, start here with these yeah. short little essays, and we're gonna maybe talk about a few of those, but. When I read Chesterton, it was as if I was reading somebody that was writing right now in in yeah. twenty. Well, I was. It was more like twenty, probably fifteen, when I was reading him for the first time. But what you know, maybe you can help us understand what was going on in his culture in his time that was maybe inspiring him to talk about. I mean, just in in uh, orthodoxy, he talks about original sin, free will, intellectualism, polygamy, materialism, pantheism, progressivism. And um, I think, you know, one of the big ideas of the book ultimately is how boring, predictable, and uh, just easy heresy is, and, and how the difficult and intellectually and artistically fulfilling road is orthodoxy, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, what was going on in his culture and his time that was provoking some of these ideas. Well, he starts the whole book off where he's walking down the street with uh, a publisher, a famous publisher who's published a lot of big books. And uh, he says, the publisher says something like, that guy will get on well. He believes in himself. And then, you know, Chesterton notices a, a loony bin cab going by from a place called Hanwell, an insane asylum. And he says, you know where people really believe in themselves is the insane asylum. And so he gets to this idea of you know, you want to meet somebody who really uh, has a worldview that's all airtight and you can't poke a hole in it, talk to an insane person. And mm. uh, we've come this, and, and he comes from modernism, things that work. That's The important thing is if it works. And then it becomes if it works for you as, they, as things move on philosophically. Uh, and so that kind of became the value. This works, so we'll do it. So in a lot of times, it's one thing. So he talk, he calls it monomania. Uh, having one idea and then making an entire worldview out of that. So, um, you know, you can see this in determinism. Determinism just becomes this very, and he says the reason he calls it a circle is because a circle uh, doesn't have to, you know, isn't necessarily giant. It can be tiny. So you can have a worldview that's airtight. Uh, you can't poke a hole in it, and it's this tiny, tiny worldview, you know. Um, and so the, uh, you know, the determinist th has to throw a lot of things out of truth, uh, you know, ideas of beauty and truth, goodness, these things that I always have to take for granted, love, uh, they're all just kind of byproducts of this deterministic, a bunch of particles falling down a, a, you know, a cosmic staircase and just happening to happen the way that they are. So uh, that's a big one. He gets into that and people, he talks about how people pick one virtue and leave all the other ones out and kind of go down that rabbit hole of where it's just pure charity or um, pure love without judgment you know and that's and that's one thing where he gets into is uh, the Christian faith is where he only is the only place he sees where two ideas can coexist mm. full love full forgiveness you know full mercy uh, full judgment um, 
And I think that that's, so he, he paints this picture of the circle being kind of the Eastern idea of uh, kind of this just all-encompassing uh, view of the world through one idea. And then the, he, he talks a lot about paradox, which is tough, uh, especially when you want to be purely logical. Mm-hmm. Points out all these paradoxes and things that uh, he has a whole chapter on it, which I did put in my book. And it's the hardest chapter in my book, I think. Um, but he talks about the cross, having that paradox right at the center, and it can go out forever. The, the four arms of the cross can continue to grow. So it's not a thing. Uh, there's mystery. And so I think that's one thing. He puts logic back in its place. Mm. So when he talks about Elfland, uh, I, so I also have that chapter in my book, The Ethics of Elfland. <clears throat> and he's not saying that logic is bad or you shouldn't use reason. He's saying put it in its right place. So he says, in Elfland... Yes, apples can be purple or gold, or you can have tigers hanging by their tails from the trees. But three tigers are three tigers. Like you can never have, uh, you know, two plus two never equals yeah. anything but four in Elfland, because there there is logic and there is reason in its rightful place. But in, there's never some logical explanation for why a chicken lays an egg. Like it's just a, an egg doesn't imply a chicken. We don't know why that. It's just kind of cool. <laughs> so <laughs> he he takes those things and he says like there's a creative element to the universe that isn't purely logical mm-hmm. uh and and you know part of that is mysterious like i, I guess as a if you're a person that's purely purely deterministic you have to believe that everything all the strangeness of the universe is pure as a purely logical reason it's like it is and now, it, denies that for anyone listening or watching who isn't familiar with that term determinism mm. how, help them understand what that what that means it's pretty much the idea that uh, well, it's so think Calvinism without God. <laughs> yeah. uh, everything, everything is, it's not, except for there's no, it's not predetermined. There's no being predetermining it. It's just, it's the same thing as, you know, uh, rolling the dice. Uh, the universe is a billion pieces of matter rolling, and somehow through the actions of different chemical reactions, everything that's happening right now really couldn't have happened in their way. It's, we're reacting chemically, mm-hmm. and you are having this conversation based on chemical reactions. And so there's a free will is just a, uh, it's a myth. It's not real. Yeah. It's an illusion. Uh, interesting. I'm going to go here next because of some things that you just said. You know, you're t- he's talking about keeping things partially mysterious. But yet he, he, I like how he keeps categories where they are. Like I think it's in Orthodoxy mm-hmm. where he talks about the giraffe and he says, you know, if you don't draw an animal with a long neck, it's not a giraffe. I mean, that's my (laughs) great Chesterton paraphrase because I don't have it right in front of me. But, you know, basically the idea is you got to call it something else. And that's something Mm -hmm. in progressive Christianity, the point that I try to make is like, if you're going to redefine Christianity and you're going to disagree with Jesus, you should not call it Christianity. You should call it something else. That's a different category. It's a different something. And um, so I wanted to ask you about this because, uh, you know, I I talk about the work of Richard Rohr a lot. I, I try to explain to people why I believe that his work is unbiblical and why this is not an orthodox Christian view of Christ and of the world. Um, And in his book, The Universal Christ, he actually quotes Chesterton to support his, uh, ultimately, his view of the world, which is panentheism. And that's Hmm. just generally the view that that God created the world, but he exists in it and as it. So kind of like a hand fills a glove, he calls the universe the body of God. Uh, Creation is the first incarnation, but Christians kind of mix it up. We think that Jesus is the main deal, but it's really creation and this Christ 
This cosmic Christ is in all created matter, and we just need to grab hold of it. And, you know, in the in the book, R- Richard Rohr even dedicates the book to his dog and calls his dog the Christ. So, like, that's the end what? game of that. that. You know, I feel like there's maybe a Babylon Bee article in that somewhere. <laughs> but um, in you know, sort of supporting this idea, uh, he quotes Chesterton. Here's the quote he uses. He says, and this, by the way, on Kindle has close to 3,000 highlights, this this quote oh. that I'm about to read to you. So people really, his fans really loved this. And this uh, is a Chesterton says, quote he uses? Yeah, well, it's his, the Chesterton quote and then his comment on it. Okay. Uh, okay. So it says, as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, your religion is not the church you belong to, but the cosmos you live inside of, end quote. And then his comment is, once we know that the entire physical world around us, all of creation, is both the hiding place and the revelation place for God, this world becomes home, safe, enchanted, offering grace to any who look deeply. I call I call that kind of deep and calm seeing, quote-unquote, contemplation. And so then he goes on to talk about the essential function of religion is to radically connect us with everything. And so he just goes on and kind of unpacks his panentheistic worldview, which really, at the end of it, there's he even says there's no atonement. You don't need atonement. You don't need to be saved. You just need to realize that you're inherently connected with God already. You've never been separated from God. And he quotes a lot of dead guys to, <laughs> to support his views. And I gotcha. sort of feel like if Chesterton were alive, he would push back on being used to support mm-hmm. that, that worldview. And I wonder, how does that hit you? Roar using the quote, your religion is not the church you belong to, but the cosmos you live inside of, in essence, to defend his sort of cousin of pantheism, panentheism. Right. I mean, it's a jump to say that, because uh, Chesterton is obviously saying your religion and he's jumping to your God is everything around you. And then, so it kind of, yeah. of his, that whole view of the God is everything, it doesn't, it kind of just, it's kind of like that idea that everything is unique. Isn't there nothing unique? Like it, if every the single thing is God is, is that just another way of saying there isn't a God? Like I, I get lost in it. So it's, it's a nothing statement to me. So I think, I think Chester is saying, you know, we tend to not tie our uh, beliefs to reality. We, we do, we make it all about the religion and what the religion makes us look like and how we look to our neighbors. And he's saying, you know, my religion is wrapped up in the, you know, my just the beauty of, of the sunset or the children and the things right. around me. And uh, we lose sight of that. And, uh, and and you should, your faith should stick with you even if your church shuts down kind of yes. thing. It'd be a club you're in. Right. I went through that. I was big in Young Life. Uh, I met Christ through Young Life. And when I, I left Young Life, because I didn't know if I could be a Christian without it. And it was really hard for a while because it was this club and it was like everybody had their own same way of being. And, you know, I think every every group like that has the dangers of turning into a cult because uh, people don't want to, people get very afraid of getting out of that because they mm-hmm. become very safe with everybody yeah. thinking the same, becoming narrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's almost like uh, as I read through Universal Christ, it's like he's taking... Uh, a legitimate concept of the book of nature, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. There's actually, Romans 1 tells us there's things we can know about God by looking out into nature, even, you know, his essence and divine, some of his divine attributes. And I think Rohr is like saying, you know, that's more important than the Bible, because he does say that. He's like, you know, basically implies the Bible's just this thing that was written in the last nanosecond of history. So like, we need to look at this other thing that Christ just fills and uh, and animates in some way. And um, yeah, I was sort of, when, when I saw 
that he was using Chesterton to support that, I was like, you know, maybe you could quote somebody who's alive who's here to defend themselves <laughs> before you do that. All right. So let's talk about some of these uh, these essays that you're saying, hey, start here. This is a good place right. to start in understanding what Chesterton was all about. The first one is called Tremendous Trifles, and this was written in 1909. Uh, and I think that was right about when Orthodoxy came out. I believe, maybe it was 1908 was orthodoxy. Um, And the quote you start with says, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. So tell us why we should read Tremendous Trifles. All right, yeah, real quick, just just what inspired me to write the book is uh, through being on the Babylon Bee podcast, I'm quoting Chesterton like crazy. I started constantly getting emails. Where should I chart? Start with Chesterton. And I I have another podcast I did for a while called Audio Mullet. We talk about a Chesterton in there too. So just getting this question all the time. And it's hard because there isn't a great book to recommend. Orthodoxy is really hard. Uh, it is a must read, but uh, a lot of people read it and put it down. And I have no idea what they just read or they don't make it all the way through. And one thing you learn about Chesterton after reading a lot. And I've, so one of the things I did, because I had such a tough time grasping Chesterton is I created a, I, I talked a bunch of my friends into getting together. This is a pretty nerdy, but we all got together, smoked cigars and read Chesterton together. And it caught on and it became a group of guys we'd meet every Sunday. It grew into a group of like on average 20 guys, cigars, whiskey, and Chesterton. We'd read a few chapters and we went and we ended up going through over like probably a three-year period going reading a bunch of his books. I've read some of them multiple times. I ended up recreating a group like that. I moved out here uh, to a little more eastward from Los Angeles. And with the, but when I joined the Babylon Bee, so we have a bunch of the Babylon Bee guys and a bunch of other guys at a cigar shop after they closed down. We, read, we now are like four books in on Chesterton. Um, but one thing you learn when you get that far in is you realize Chesterton was an essayist. Like he, he rocks the essay. That's his, that's his art form. Mm. It's not the book. Like the book, he has amazing books, but there's going to be essays or chapters that make no sense to you and chapters that stick with you. You're, you're generally going to remember your favorite essays or chapters of Chesterton, not books. So he would have and been so, a perfect blogger right now. Like if he were well, yeah, alive today, journalist. he would I mean, be his a, main, yeah. He wrote like 5,000 articles, I think, or wow. crazy amounts. He wrote 100 books, but he wrote something like 5,000 articles for newspapers on top of plays, on top of novels and everything else he did. So I start, I, you know, I'd always write this email and like, well, this is a pretty good essay, but like, you, here's a bunch of essays you should try out. But I always want to kind of give an introduction. And then I knew when they're going to read it, there's all these things that could be footnoted because there's a ton of references he makes from both having a classical education and knowing things like, you know, Greek mythology and Shakespeare and all this stuff. Um, and then just stuff from modern, his modern times. Stuff was in the news in his time, but isn't now. So, uh, and then I, you know, I started thinking, well, it's got to be a book that is like, if you want to get into Chesterton, here's where to start. And I started looking, I couldn't find one. There's so many Chesterton books and you can read all his stuff for free, but there is no gateway to Chesterton book. Mm-hmm. And then he also, one of his most famous concepts is Chesterton's fence, where he says, if there's a fence there, uh, probably the person who knows why it was there should be able to tear it down, not just when he just doesn't like it being there. It's kind of a picture of tradition. One is probably his most famous analogy. So, and I like puns, Chesterton's gateway was the name of mine. And then, you know, once again, it's a drug reference. Yeah. So... <laughs> I made, I decided to make it and, uh, and I had fun with it. You know, I got to be humorous with the, I did 400 footnotes. Um, so there really shouldn't be a spot you get to and you have to stop and Google anything. I also broke up the big walls of paragraphs. So tremendous trifles, all to get to that. 
Um, to me, this is the easiest, probably the easiest, and it's probably my favorite, even though it's really simple. It's a fairy tale. It's very short. Um, but it's this very simple fairy tale that really kind of illustrates his ideas about humility and wonder really beautifully. Um, it's a fairy tale about two boys that are playing in a little garden in the front in their front yard, and a milkman walks up, who's a, who is, of course, a fairy, uh, and asks them if they want to, if they each have one wish, which would, what would it be? And one wishes to be a giant, so he becomes a giant, and he strides these long strides, and quickly realizes that, you know, everything out in the world looks like the little garden he was just in, the little faucet in the garden, that's the Niagara Falls now, a um, little bit of cork, you know, that's the Grand Canyon, he's just basically shrunk everything down, uh, and he just becomes depressed, falls down, and uh, just gets, ends up getting his head chopped off by uh, a backwoodsman, you know, kind of fairy tale style. And so then the other kid wishes to be a pygmy, just to be a tiny little bug-sized man. And suddenly Chesterton goes in this long description of how beautiful that garden that he already was in becomes, because mm. he became more within proportion to his universe. And then he goes in this whole beautiful thing, and that's and he talks about that's why. That's why the devil wants to take you up to the heights, to get up to the top of the mountain to look down. And he wants to look down on everything. He wants to be feel bigger than everything. And uh, so just those simple ideas. Um, he very beautifully and humorously writes. And it's really, it's, I do think it's, he makes almost no strange references to anything. And there's like, there might be like two footnotes on that one. Um, and one of them might just be, isn't this great? So Yeah, yeah I know. The footnotes are great, by the way. They're <laughs> kind of keep it moving and... They, they inject a little humor, a little extra humor there. Um, you mentioned that he was really big on talking about the family. And so one of the essays you have in your book is on certain modern writers and the institution of family. And the quote you have right. here uh, to start is, is so good from Chesterton. It says, the best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. Tell us about that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's when I was talking about where he starts off talking about how the how the big city is a place created. What does he call it? He calls it a place made uh, uh, not the not an antithesis uh, the, against Christian knowledge. He, he, it's not against. The way he puts it is like, you know, for the suppression of Christian knowledge or, in, you know, basically to narrow us into our little views because you think about, you move to a city and your little tiny strange hobby you have, you can find a group of people that think just like you. You can play it totally safe and not ever have to encounter some, you know, your strange neighbors or whatever. And, uh, <clears throat> but when you live in a small town, you have to get to know your neighbor. You, and I, I related this because I came from a very small town in Oregon and I had friends that were senior citizens. I had friends that had families and I was friends with their kids. I had this variety of friends. I had friends that were different races and things like that, that we just, we never would have become friends uh, if, if we lived in a city where everybody segregates off into these groups. Mm. Um, and so that rung very true for me when I had just moved to the city. So that was a big one for me on that, but then also just the idea of the family being the most ad romantic adventure you can go on. <laughs> yeah. Because that is the opposite of what we're taught to think of it as. Totally, and yeah. We want to escape it. And, and, he, and his only point is, his main point in this essay is, don't fool yourself by thinking when you leave the family and go off to the big city that you're going to experience more of humanity and you're being brave and you're taking on the world. Like, no, that's what you left. Like, you left mm. behind the bravery and the taking on the world and the romance. 
the city is a place to go uh, find your niche and lock yourself into it and grow as little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> He's not saying the city is necessarily bad, but that it can be used badly, especially if you're not self-aware enough to realize that that's what most people do when they move to a giant metropolis. Mm. They narrow themselves. They don't grow. I was thinking about that concept the other day. I was out walking and I was thinking about my grandpa who all of his life essentially and all of his married life worked three jobs typically, construction. I mean, he would, you know, dig holes for plumbing and he gladly and happily and never heard him complain about mm -hmm. his job because his life wasn't about his job. He did the job to provide for my grandma and to provide for his kids and his grandkids. And I, I thought about how radically different that is than what we're being taught today. Uh, like the world tells women that if you, you know, if you choose to stay home and mm -hmm. keep a house and take care of your children and that like you're missing out on life, like life's out there and you're stuck here right. doing that stuff. And even to men, the lie would be that, you know, your life's really about that, getting that promotion, getting that job that really fulfills you, really satisfies you. And then you kind of do the home thing in between mm -hmm. before you go back out and do your job. And that's, it seems to be, right. that's the message we get today. And it's just flipped on its head. It's backwards because that, that, as we know, you know, the family is so important and that's really what it's about. And I love the way he frames that, like, that's the great adventure is, is right. the family. And that's why we do all the other stuff is to, to be able to participate in the family like that. I love that about him. And then, of course, yeah, he really defends that. In, in what's wrong with the world, he really goes into that. Uh, some really good stuff on that because yeah, his, yeah. his whole idea: the family is the point. You That's go out to point. work and to defend and do everything you do. The man does that to defend and preserve the family, not to go out there and escape from it. Right. If you're doing that. You're doing it wrong. That's right. Uh, so, and then, okay. So, I'm, I'll, I'll ask you about this one. This was one of the Chesterton quotes that I immediately read. This quote years ago. And mm -hmm. I was like, I love this man. Like, this is <laughs> this is a person I want to read more about and I want to get to know as best I can. And so you have one of the essays to read is called Cheese. And mm -hmm. uh, th this quote is just the best. Poets <laughs> have been mysteriously silent on the subject of cheese. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Got a little cheese in my throat. I don't know what that is. Yeah. but um, So talk about that one. Um, it's a simple essay. It's really fun to read. Uh, it's really about him. So we actually had Dale Alquist, the president of the G.K. Chesterton Society, on the Babylon Bee podcast yesterday. And in honor of this essay, we ate cheese and bread together. We had two uh, platters. Because in the essay, he's talking about his experience going to all these little villages on uh, throughout England as he's touring around doing speaking. And he says, in each town, you stop and you ask for bread and cheese. And they bring you bread and cheese, and it's completely unique to that area. So every time you ask for that simple two things, bread and cheese, you get a, a full unique experience that gives you the tastes and the textures of that place. And it's just this special, wonderful thing that he loves. And then he goes to London, the big city, where things becoming commercialized and uh, mass produced. And he asks for cheese and bread. And he really goes off on this part of the essay where he just kind of loses his mind when the waiter walks up with some kind of mass produced cheese and crackers, which he calls biscuits. And he, he kind of lays into the, the poor waiter about how dare you pair cheese and, and crackers. And he says, did, you know, he, he says, did the, did the Lord at the table, okay, and this is not an exact quote, but basically <laughs> says, you know, when, when Christ at the first, at the last supper, did he have, first, did he have the, 
ridiculousness to offer biscuits. You know, <laughs> just goes on. So the idea that you could re ever replace bread with crackers. So it's this funny thing, but it is also about how, uh, in I think in the in the race to like modernize everything, we're losing our souls, mm. and uh, and he and he's lamenting that. You know, he wants to hold on to that. Uh, he wants people to see. He wants. He really because all in all this political stuff when he's trying to push for a political view, he never wants to force anybody. He wants people to see it. So his mm -hmm. real goal is to like to change the people so they can see why be localized, why buy locally, and why um, why try to resist the uh, oversaturation of giant corporations or big stuff, big tech now. I mean, he would yeah. have been freaking out over that stuff, but, um, but he never wanted to force it through government, so... Yeah. So I think that yeah, cheese, his and cheese is his lament that people stand in. I think naturally tend to go towards the, the getting this. He, he compares it to soap. He says that soap everywhere you go it doesn't matter if you're in China or India. There's two kinds of soap in the world right now. There's two giant companies. You're gonna get one of them, Brown Soap and whatever that one was. Yeah. He says and he says soon it's gonna be like that with cheese. And he's kind and he's kind of right. I mean you know they got like Velveeta and stuff. The nice thing is that you can get lots of varieties, but um. Cheese whiz. I mean, he if, if he would roll over in his grave if he knew about cheese whiz. Cheese whiz. Yeah. yeah, I love the way this one starts. It says, "My forthcoming work in five volumes: The Neglect of <laughs> Cheese in European Literature is a work of such unprecedented and laborious detail that it is doubtful if I shall live to finish it." I love that. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, in a moment, we are going to go to our Patreon-only portion of our discussion. So if you want to know what that's all about, it's basically just a an after-party hangout time where if you're in the Patreon Facebook group, which you can uh, go to and, and get access to by going to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, uh, you get to select the questions that we ask our guests in our kind of hangout after-party time. So we're going to go to that in just a moment. Again, go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, and you can check out the different tiers. And, and uh, if you want to support us, you can choose a tier. And I think it's tier four to get access to all of that. But you can get early access. Uh, and uh, there's a Facebook group you can be a part of. You can select a tier. We'll get a free book. You can take a look at all that at patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. But as we close out this portion, uh, Ethan, what I mean, if anyone is not already convinced to get your book and start with Chesterton. If, if anybody's not convinced, you know, give us your best pitch. Why should they pick up Chesterton? Well, this has everything I always wanted in a Chesterton book. Uh, and that's, it's, uh, it's not too much. It's also, I think that a lot of Chesterton books, oh, I'm showing off, sorry. Yes. So I'm also an illustrator. So I illustrated the cover. Oh, uh, really? all the little illustrations inside on every chapter oh. as an illustration. You never get a, a Chesterton book with images in it. Because they're just all public amazing. domain walls of text. Um, and then also one of his uh, essays in the book is about drawing on brown paper and how uh, with, you know, you need white. You need the color white uh, to do that. And so in order to illustrate, that's why I did this. On brown paper, it's just pure black, pure white. But to show what white does on just wow. black. With black and brown, it's a very dead flat drawing. You add that white and it just bursts out. And so there's a... There's one in there called A Piece of Chalk where he talks about that. So I think that along with, I think, footnotes, but also these aren't scholarly footnotes. These are, uh, you know, practically, I'm not a stoner, but, uh, you know, kind of like a slacker guy. I'm <laughs> like, uh, let me Google that for you. And then I'm like, 
I don't know how to say this word, but <laughs> I think I got the gist of it. All right, keep reading, keep reading. Yeah. So, and even I've had, I've gotten some great compliments on the uh, the audiobook is me reading it. Oh, when good. I get the footnote, I, there is that inflection of mm, better footnote that, and then I'm looking it up. I'm like, okay, maybe we get it. Let's keep going. So it's just a very great. casual. Um, so I think it's it's Chesterton without uh, anybody too scholarly. Like I said, I didn't go to school for this, and also <laughs> uh, very casual. Uh, fun and i've never seen a heavily foot footnoted chesterton i've seen lightly footnoted mm. this one gets to everything i mean i even footnoted edgar Allan poe just in case you know like every little thing i was like yeah we'll just cover it um and then collections of essays are the best i think uh and especially if you've never read chesterton at least from my perspective this is a great place to start love it you're gonna you're gonna find at least one or two essays in here you love i agree more. and definitely cheese you're gonna love cheese <laughs> yeah all right, I want to thank my guest, Ethan uh, Nicole, for joining me today and talking about one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton. Pick up the book. Uh, let me get that title again. Chesterton's Gateway, 14 Essays to Get You Hooked on Chesterton. Definitely pick that up on Amazon and uh, check out the audiobook. Sounds fun. That audiobook sounds awesome. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. Always helps if you comment. And if you saw this post on social media, to like it and share it is helpful as well. If you're listening on audio platforms like Google, Spotify, or iTunes, really helps if you go over and leave a great review. Helps with all those algorithms and stuff. But for now, thanks for watching, and we will see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.